Well, since we already have our Bibles out, uh, open to Genesis chapter 1, I want you to read along with me in uh, verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 26 through 31, and um, this is going to serve as our focus text this morning um, as we look at this, you know, overarching view of asking ourselves why this creation account is even in the Bible, right? So that's the whole point of the series, why is this there? And more importantly, we're going to ask the question, what is here in Genesis? What is God's invitation for us to know him and to be transformed by it, right? As Jeff said, so hear and receive the word of the Lord from Genesis 1, 26 through 31. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the, in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth. And every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the air, of the earth, and the birds in the sky, and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and as Pastor Danny just said, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Did you notice that on the, uh, on the sixth day when he said it was very good, that was when God created mankind, humankind, in God's image, and he saw that it was very good. Well, as we noticed, you know, everybody knows the in the beginning thing. Like, even if you're not a person of faith, you're going to be familiar with the Genesis, Adam, Eve thing. It's just so iconic and ubiquitous and almost as iconic Uh, maybe not quite as much, but at least in in popular culture, Western culture of recent decades is the story, one of my favorite stories of all time, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Roald Dahl's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, made famous by the uh, sometimes strange and fantastical movie starring Gene Wilder, who was funny and a little creepy in that one as well. But of course, I grew up watching that, and, um, and, and you know the story, right? I mean, there's this impoverished boy, his name is Charlie Bucket, And he and his family are just so, so very poor. And he has this deep longing in his heart that someday he might be able to, you know, provide something for his his mother and his four uh, grandparents that they care for. That was that weird thing where the four grandparents are in the bed. And that's so strange. I don't know. And so, but serving as this symbol for him of abundance, of just, you know, over-the-top abundance is the Willy Wonka Chocolate Factory. Um, and it's owned by the eccentric Willy Wonka, right? And he, uh, do you remember the pub- publicity stunt that he, he takes uh, in, in five chocolate bars? What does he put in there? Does anybody know? Golden, t- see how everybody knows that. Five golden tickets. And if you're lucky enough to get the chocolate bar that has the golden ticket, you know, you win the prize and, uh, and you get to go on a tour of, of the chocolate factory. But the real prize is that you get a lifetime supply of chocolate. And as a kid, that's like, oh yeah, baby, I've, that, that's what I'm talking about in terms of abundance, right? Well, so 
Charlie's one of the lucky kids who gets the golden ticket, so he gets to go on the tour of the, of the chocolate factory. And of course, there's these four other just awful, over-the-top, uh, horrible kids, which we should blame the parents for that. And um, they have these character flaws, right? And so as they're on the tour, one by one, you know, each kid with the character flaws, they, they fall off, and there's these moral, you know, uh, stories to learn from. But Charlie Bucket, he proves that he is actually of good character um, because he resists stealing. Does anybody know what he resisted stealing? What was it called? Everlasting Gobstopper. He, he resists, resists stealing the Gobstopper, and then at this point, Willy Wonka reveals that what this has actually been about is it's been a test. It's been a test because here Charlie Bucket had thought that he was so excited to get this lifetime supply of chocolate. I mean, what could be better than that? And Willy Wonka's like, no, I'm actually in inviting you, I'm rewarding you with inviting you to be a co-owner of my factory with me, a co-creator of amazing chocolate confections, and he's inviting him to be an heir to the entire Wonka fortune. Yeah. So how in the world does this relate to Genesis, you might ask? Well, when we look at Genesis in the creation account, and we're looking at it with fresh eyes, just like we, the conversation that we just had over here, and we're asking, what is God's invitation for us in creation? What we begin to see is that God has created a realm, right? The, the whole, you know, the separation of the, the sky, the waters in the sky, and, and he creates this realm where we can be in relationship to God. But that's actually just the beginning of it, because if we're looking upper level here, it's, uh, you know, what, what we're finding is that, um, uh, I just lost my place, sorry. <laughs> uh, what, we're, what we're looking at is that uh, God is saying, I want you, my creation, who I have created in my image, to be a co-ruler in my kingdom with me. Yeah, which when you say that, it's almost like, yikes, is that blasphemy? Well, no, it's not. Let's look at, again at, at uh, verse 26, right? So we just, we just saw this. It says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that, and those so that words in, in your Bible are always going to be really important, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And then in verse 27, as a response to that idea, God says, uh, it says, so God created mankind in his own image. You guys, we just sang, good, good father, it's who you are. And, and we, we sang about who we are as well in light of that. And we, all of us, all of humankind are created as image bearers of God. And that has huge implications for us. I want you to see this video from uh, The Bible Project, um, which you haven't seen, the, the Bible Project on YouTube. They're just this um, amazing resource for Bible learning and whatnot. And um, you might see some more of these videos in our Summer in the Scriptures series. They're, they're really informative, super entertaining, and, and theologically sound. So um, this minute... Video is five minutes long, but um, I promise that it's going to be just totally worth it for you. And remember, as we watch, what we're asking is, what's God's invitation here to know him more and to be transformed? 
So if you lived in ancient Bible times, odds are you lived under the authority of a king. And many of these kings claimed that they were gods, and they would even call themselves the image of God. Meaning they had authority to tell people what to do, order things to be made. Yeah, they got to define good and evil. And these kings would often make statues of themselves, which in Hebrew were called tselem, often translated as idol or image. But for Israel, they didn't view their kings as the God. In fact, they were never supposed to even make images of God. It's exactly right. And that was really unique for that time and culture. This is rooted, first of all, in Israel's belief that you can't reduce the creator God down to any one thing in creation. But there's another reason. People aren't to make images of God because God has already made images of himself. When did he do that? Let's go to page one of the Bible. And the first person we meet there is God. He's the one with authority over all creation. He speaks and creation obeys. And he defines what is good and not good. In other words, he alone is king. But then surprisingly, as the pinnacle of all of God's creative work, he makes humans and he calls all of them the image of God. So he gives all humans the authority to rule. Exactly. That's what he goes on to say. He tells the humans to subdue the earth and to rule it. And so this task that once belonged only to elite kings is here in the Bible, the task of every human being. This was a revolutionary statement in its day because all humans are being called to rule and to participate in the human project. So what does this mean? I mean, how are we all supposed to rule? So the picture we get in Genesis is gardening. Gardening? Yes. Gardening. So they rule the earth by cultivating it, by harnessing all of the earth's raw potential and then making something more and new out of it. So growing food for each other. Yes, but that also includes growing families then, which become neighborhoods. And then they create communities where people are going to work and take care of each other and build businesses and cities that will expand to new places and so on. So ruling is really the day-to-day acts of our work and creativity. Yes, we take the world somewhere. This is humanity's divine and sacred task. Yeah, and this all sounds really nice. And humans have designed some pretty great things. But just as often we create things that cause a lot of suffering and a lot of injustice, so maybe we shouldn't actually be ruling. Yeah, so the Bible addresses this. In Genesis, what happens is that God gives humans a choice about how they're going to rule. So are they going to use their authority for the benefit of others, which is God's definition of good, or are they going to turn away and define good and evil for themselves and use their authority for self-advantage? And in the story, they choose to define good and evil on their own terms. And so this is the Bible's depiction of the human condition. So sometimes we pull off amazingly good stuff, but just as often, despite our best intentions, we act selfishly and we create evil in the world. And so we're stuck as mediocre rulers making a mess of things. But that's not the end of the story. So the Bible goes on and it makes this claim that all of this was resolved when God bound himself to humanity through Jesus. And he showed us what it looks like to truly rule as a human. So what does it look like? Well, Jesus ruled by serving and by seeking the best for others, by putting himself underneath them and loving not just his friends, but also his enemies. And that's not a typical way to rule. And not only that, Jesus confronted the consequences of all of the evil and the death that we have created by our messed up ways of ruling. And he takes it. I mean, he lets it kill him. 
And so when the New Testament writers looked back to Jesus' resurrection, they see a whole new future opening up for all humanity. Jesus is a new way to be human. Yeah, that's why they called Jesus the image of God or the new human. And not only that, they also believe that Jesus' divine life and power is now available to heal and to transform us to become our life and power. And this sounds really nice, but what does it really look like? So practically, the Apostle Paul said it looks like people being filled by Jesus' own presence and spirit, filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and integrity and gentleness and self-control. He says, this is the new humanity that God wants to create in us so that we become people in whom God's image is being restored, people who will move the human project forward. And that's actually how the story of the Bible ends. It's a renewed world where God is on his throne and his servants are all around him, but they're the ones ruling over this new world, taking it into new, uncharted territory with Jesus as their healer and their guide. Well, thank you, Bible Project, for preaching my sermon for me. We can now go home. So, uh, so again, that video is called, it's the, the Bible Project, and, uh, and the video is called The Im, uh, Image of God. So I would encourage you to go back and watch it several times. I've watched it so many times, and each time I notice something different, and I just noticed in this one that Adam looks an awful lot like Steve Finkbeiner. <laughs> just saying. Just saying. I also noticed that one of the good things that people created, that humans had created, was a Furby. I don't know if you saw that down at the bottom, so thank you, Bible Project, for being so awesome at what you do. Uh, so isn't that just an amazing way to take another look uh, at at image of God, I was blown away. I was like, this is, this is just genius. And um, you know, it, it ends with us image bearers uh, being restored to living in unity with God and in all creation. And in the same way, you know, that with the Bible ending the, uh, similarly to the way that it began, it's the same for us, that we, uh, the story of humankind, we were created in the image of God and our story can also end in a similar way to the way that it began. And, um, uh, you know, we can do this by saying yes to Jesus, and we'll talk, to that, uh, talk about that in just a little bit more. But, you know, Jesus is the ultimate image of God who, by the indwelling of his presence, makes us into people who we are, uh, you know, not only redeemed from our broken ways, but, um, you know, God makes us joint heirs. He makes us co-owners and co-rulers with God in his kingdom. And as we just saw in the video, God wants to transform us into what the New Testament writers called the new creation. So what does that mean, the new creation? I want us to look at, uh, if you, you've got your Bible open there, right? So turn to 2 Corinthians 5, uh, uh, 16 through 17. If you have your pew Bible there, which, how awesome is that? We can actually use our Bibles. We were not allowed to touch those for a while. So um, in your paper Bible, it's on page 1160 um, in your Bible. So this is... 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 5, 16 through 17. And this is the Apostle Paul's perfect explanation of what it means to be the new creation. And he's talking to the new Christians of the Corinthian church about how they can expect to be changed into a new creation now that they've said yes to the Lordship of Christ. So in verse 16, Paul says, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so now no longer. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new as is here. So we can expect in this new creation that this, that, that will happen in us and you know, uh, when we're engaged with God and his kingdom. And Paul didn't say uh, you know, that when we're, when we're in Christ, we might become a new creation. Uh, or he didn't say that if we're in Christ, we might also kind of remain in our old, broken, and hurtful ways. But no, he says that if we're truly in Christ, if we're engaged, this new creation has come to us. And this is the new humanity that we heard about in the video that we just saw. And in fact, later in Paul's uh, letters to Ephesians and Colossians and, uh, and the letter to Philemon as well, Paul takes this idea even further when he teaches that God wanted to break down walls that divided people, right? So this is a big part of the new creation. It's totally relevant to our world right now. Walls between Jews and Gentiles and between barbarian and Scythian and uh, enslaved and freed and male and female and uh, Republican and Democrat, all the things that keep us feeling like people are others, right? Your otherness. And uh, it's just the opposite of unity so that God can create a new humanity in us. And we are... We are that new humanity. We're Christ's body here on earth. So another way of thinking of this new humanity, uh, you know, um, is the simple concept of unity. Unity is the lens through which we'll see the world when we're a new creation. And Paul said in verse 16, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. That's our old way. And in this new humanity, there's just no labels that define people anymore by their divisions, right? Instead, we're defined by our unity and defined as humans that are continually being created, being recreated in God's image, that God's image thing again, and are being transformed more and more into the image of the Messiah day by day. And Paul tells us that this is a choice that we have to daily put on uh, uh, you know, put on the new self. At Colossians 3.10, he said, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of the creator. Do you see how this creation language is all throughout our Bible? And so what's God's invitation in Genesis, uh, in this Genesis creation account, to know him more and be transformed? We keep coming back to that. Well, remember the image um, it's actually all throughout that video, uh, but especially at the end, the, uh, the image of every person in God's kingdom was holding in their hand a scepter. Remember that? They used that as a symbol of being a ruler, a co-ruler, all throughout the video. Um, and our invitation then, guys, in these first two chapters of Genesis, I'm going to propose, is that all of us in God's kingdom, and not just the pastors, not just the paid staff, right, but all of us are to take up our very own scepter that Christ has placed into our uniquely gifted hands, right? Our individual hands. And this is part of making us his new creation, is God gives us that leadership, that scepter, that rulership. And with those God-given scepters in our hands, that we would, that we would rule with Christ and be all in with that that we would take co-ownership and that we would be fruitful and multiply, as the text said, by joining with God to co-create in God's kingdom all around us. And guess what? We don't have to look for proof that, uh, that we were meant to be co-creators in his kingdom because look at today. Look at this very moment in our, uh, the history of our church. Uh, we are emerging from 16-month pandemic where we as a church staff got to creatively 
partner with God and pray with God about how can we recreate the ways that we continually gather or the ways that we serve those who need to be served. You know, and our staff and, and all of the hardworking volunteers um, have just been working their butts off and having a blast with it, um, you know, to re- recreate how we can serve those in need and how we can gather to worship the one who has made this very new humanity that we're called to be. And yes, it has been very hard work. And yes, our church is desperately in need for those who will say, yeah, I, I'm hearing the call to step up and take my scepter and take co-ownership in the uh, part of mobilizing this ministry. And guys, I can bear witness that we are, you know, when we're getting after all that God has for us in God's heart, uh, it is exhausting, but man, it is so worth it. It's just as personally fulfilling because we're being the, the uh, creative image bearers and co-creators that God has called us to be. So my question for you this morning as we move closer to a response is uh, to this invitation. Um, and this is speaking less to the, the collective we, but more to us as individuals. But when you consider your involvement, your, your level of engagement with God's kingdom. And in light of that video we saw, is there a scepter in your hand? As you move more and more toward Christ and being transformed more into his likeness every day, as a follower of Jesus, do you hold your, in your proverbial spiritual hands uh, the mantle of rulership and co-ownership that we hear God calling us to in Genesis? That's the invitation. As we bring this to a close, I want to invite the band uh, to come back out and they can lead us in a response. But hear this. The time in our world and in our church is so ripe for creative engagement with the community of kingdom builders that God has not just invited you to attend but has appointed you as a co-heir and a co-owner of God's ministry. And by God's grace and the faithful stewardship of you, the faithful people of Marine Covenant Church, at a time that by all accounts should have left us, left us our ministry decimated, right? This church has been, uh, um, this church this very day is emerging as being fully resourced to serve the community around us by taking to, uh, taking to the community our words and the hands and the feet and the provision that only Christ at work in us can supply. Philippians 2.13 says that God tells us it's God who is at work in us to will and to enact us in order to fulfill his good purpose. And in God's economy, if that's not truly being co-creative, co-owners in God's new creation, then I don't know So in these next few minutes, as we respond to what God might be doing in us um, as we worship together, what might an appropriate response be to this word from Genesis creation? And I think our only response is God calls us to be co-owners and co-creators, continual co-creators of his kingdom, is to just say, say, yes, we'll do that. Yes, to whatever it is that God has planned for our engagement in God's kingdom. And when we say amen to God, 
to the, the, the things that are in God's heart for his creation. We're saying, God, let it be. Let it be like we pray in the Lord's Prayer, let your kingdom come on earth and may you, you be at work in us as we join you in your creative work. So let's stand together if you're able and we will respond to God's word.